Over the years, a lot of very strange licensed video games have been released. We're talking very strange. Games based on corporate mascots, games based on classic literature, even games based on aging rock bands. Those odd cases aside, though, movies are definitely the media properties most likely to be adapted into video games. After all, who wouldn't want the chance to become James Bond, train as a Jedi, or compete in epic light cycle races? There's been a lot of them. Some good, some bad, and some that are so strange that they almost defy explanation. Sometimes they're adapted from movies that really don't make sense as video games. That's right. Adam's Family Values is coming to your Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Other times they're based on a movie that came out decades before they decided to turn it into a game. Evil Dead. Judging. A fistful of boomsticks. <laughs> and sometimes, well, they're based on movies that weren't very popular to begin with. Street Fighter, the movie. <laughs> For Sega Saturn and Sony PlayStation will blow you away. Today, we're going to be talking about a licensed horror movie video game that is all three of those things, and how a B-movie from 1959 was turned into a video game in 1983 and subsequently lost for nearly 20 years before being rediscovered. Welcome to Mount Molehill, a place where even the smallest mysteries become mountains. I'm Chris, and this week I'm recounting the story of alligator people for the Atari 2600. This is a story of ill-advised licensed merchandise, scrappy startups, and the collapse of an entire industry. Alligator people. How did it get made? How was it lost? And how was it rediscovered? Let's make a mountain out of this molehill. A lot of words and a lot of celluloid have been dedicated to documenting the meteoric rise and cataclysmic fall of the early video gaming industry. There are so many documentaries about this, like a lot. So I'm not going to spend too much time rehashing that. And if you'd like a more in-depth account of the video game crash of 1983, I'll link to a few documentaries in the show notes. But there are a few things that are important to know about the early video gaming industry in order to understand how this game came to be. The landscape of the business was completely different from how it is today. Nowadays, you buy a Sony PlayStation 5 and you buy games for it. Games that are developed by third-party companies like Capcom, Square Enix, or Ubisoft. But in the early days of video gaming, there were no independent third-party console game developers. Games for the Atari VCS were created by developers working for Atari. Magnavox Odyssey 2 games were produced by developers working for Magnavox, and so on. That is, until 1979, when four programmers from Atari, David Crane, Larry Kaplan, Alan Miller, and Bob Whitehead, teamed up with attorney and venture capitalist Jim Levy to break away from Atari and start their own company developing third-party games for the Atari VCS. They named their company Activision, and although at the time what they were doing was legally a bit murky, Activision proved that the third-party development model was viable by producing a slew of critically and commercially successful games, most notably 1982's Pitfall. 
And this, in a way, is what ultimately led to the big video game crash in 1983. In an interview with Arcade Attack, David Crane said, We used to attend and display our new products at the Consumer Electronics Show twice per year. In one six-month period between CES shows, the number of Atari 2600 game publishers went from 3 to over 30. These were venture capital-backed attempts to duplicate Activision's success. These companies failed to realize that making fun, compelling video games, particularly for the Atari 2600, is massively difficult. They had no game designers, but instead hired programmers from other fields. These companies all failed, but not until they had built 1 to 2 million copies of the worst games you can imagine. Those awful games flooded the market at huge discounts and ruined the video game business. One such game development company, Abacus Systems, is a shining example of a flash-in-the-pan startup attempting to ride the wave of Activision's success and make a quick buck. According to programmer John W.S. Marvin, There were two venture capitalists from Los Gatos, California who saw some of their neighbors getting rich out of Atari and Activision and they wanted to do the same thing. The guys that started the startup were on the board of directors for Silicon Valley Bank and they opened accounts in their own bank for each of us. And then we would get direct deposits into our accounts. So we didn't get any paychecks because they wanted us to use their bank. These guys were pretty clever. The building that we worked in, they leased it to 20th Century Fox. They knew what they were doing. This whole deal was very profitable. As an interesting side note to this whole story, the Silicon Valley Bank mentioned here by John W.S. Marvin is the same Silicon Valley Bank that made headlines in March 2023 for going from solvent to filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy over the course of only two days, marking the second largest bank failure in U.S. history after the collapse of Washington Mutual during the 2008 financial crisis. As Marvin said, the arrangement between Abacus and Silicon Valley Bank was very profitable for the investors. And it became even more profitable in 1982 when, without ever having published a game, Abacus Systems was sold off to 20th Century Fox's newly formed gaming division. Now at this point in time, in 1982, licensed games were a relatively new thing. There had been a few, like Superman, Adventures of Tron, Raiders of the Lost Ark, but not nearly as many as we see today. And while it's not too surprising that 20th Century Fox really pressured their newly acquired programmers to develop games based on their films, the types of movies that they chose to develop into games were a bit perplexing to say the least. You see, with modern consoles, it makes a certain amount of sense to adapt movies that aren't necessarily action-packed into video games, because modern consoles have the capacity to tell a complex story or create an immersive experience. But when your console could only display 128 different colors, and was only capable of displaying chunky pixel art, and sounded like this... It's probably best to stick with high-concept, action-based films over character and plot-driven properties for your video game adaptation. Unfortunately for 20th Century Fox, they hadn't quite figured that out yet, and so some of the ideas they had for which of their properties should be turned into games seriously boggle the mind. 9 to 5 is a comedy film from 1980 starring Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly Parton as three working women who hatch a plot to blackmail their sexist and exploitative boss played by Dabney Coleman. 
It's hard to imagine how this would work as a video game for the Atari 2600, but it was apparently planned at some point as evidenced in a 1982 press release from 20th Century Fox that described the game as follows. A secretary's work is never done. Dictation, typing letters, filing, and it all has to be done on time. Now, the boss wants coffee and time is running short. Can she keep up with the pace? It was never released, and it's unknown if development had ever actually started. MASH is a dramedy television series that ran from 1972 to 1983 that follows a group of military doctors and support staff stationed in South Korea during the Korean War. The 20th Century Fox Games adaptation for the 2600 tasks the player with controlling a helicopter to rescue wounded soldiers while North Korean tanks shoot at you. It was, unsurprisingly, panned for its insensitive handling of the subject matter. Mark Berman said in a review in issue 10 of Electronic Fun with Computers and Games, First off, and for the record, to make a video game out of MASH is risky. As a movie and TV show, the point was to show the triumph of the human spirit over the inhumanity of war. Take away the humans we know and love, and you've got a heartless trivialization of a gruesome international war. He did praise the gameplay, though. And these are just a couple of examples of the bizarre video game adaptations that 20th Century Fox games had either released or planned to release at one time. There was also an alien game that was basically just Pac-Man, a Porky's game that was basically just Frogger, and a game based on The Entity where you force a shuriken through multicolored gates. I think it's safe to say that 20th Century Fox had an anything-goes attitude towards which of their properties they were willing to adapt into a video game. And that is probably as good an explanation as any for why programmer John Russell felt confident that he could take a poorly received horror sci-fi film from the 1950s and turn it into a video game. Long Cheney as the hook-armed, hate-maddened Cajun. I'll kill you, alligator man! Just like I'd kill any four-legged gator! Suspense that will clutch you like quicksand. To give a quick rundown on the film, The Alligator People follows Joyce Webster, played by Beverly Garland. On the night of their honeymoon, Joyce and her new husband Paul, played by Richard Crane, board a train whereupon Paul receives a mysterious telegram and after reading it, abandons Joyce on the train at the next stop without any explanation. For months, Joyce attempts to find her husband's whereabouts to no avail until one day she discovers that at one point Paul had used an address in the small swamp town of Bayou Landing, Louisiana to fill out a college enrollment form. Joyce travels to the Cypresses plantation in Bayou Landing and eventually discovers that Paul's disappearance is related to a plane crash that he had been in one year prior to his disappearance. You see, there's a doctor on the plantation named Mark Sinclair, who has been conducting experiments using reptile hormones on human patients to help them heal after suffering severe injuries. The treatment works, and Dr. Sinclair used this treatment on Paul after the plane crash. The only problem is that a year after a patient receives this treatment, they begin to transform into an alligator person. And upon learning this via the telegram he received on the train, Paul quickly returned home so that Joyce wouldn't see him turn into an alligator person and so that Dr. Sinclair could devise a cure. 
As is often the case in Atom Age science fiction movies, it turns out that the cure is a blast of radiation. But unfortunately, Paul's treatment is interrupted by the plantation handyman Manon, and Paul receives too much radiation, turning him into a full-blown alligator man. It's a somewhat unremarkable film, apart from featuring makeup design from Ben Nye and Dick Smith, which is admittedly a bit ropey due to the budgetary constraints. There really isn't much to distinguish the alligator people from any number of sci-fi films released in the 1950s. Its plot follows similar beats to other films of the time such as The Neanderthal Man, The Hideous Sun Demon, and The Fly. In fact, The Alligator People was developed as a co-feature to the sequel of The Fly, 1959's Return of the Fly. But overall, I'd say The Alligator People is a cut above your average Atom Age science run amuck horror film. It's nicely photographed and paced, features solid performances from Beverly Garland and Lon Chaney Jr., and it's quite an enjoyable film, if not a bit silly by today's standards. As I was watching it in preparation for this podcast, I couldn't help but wonder how someone could possibly create a game based on this movie for the Atari 2600 that at all depicted the events of the film. And the answer to that, as we'll discuss later, is that they really didn't. But in 1983, one mad lad did attempt to... Now, I wasn't able to find out much information on the programmer for the Alligator People game, John Russell, apart from that he helped to port Zack McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders from the Commodore 64 to the Atari ST, and that he has a few credits as a playtester in the early 90s. There really wasn't much I could find. I did find a company called John Russell Innovations that produced expansion boards for the Atari ST in the 80s, and that's likely the same guy, but I wasn't able to confirm that. It seems like he just made this Alligator People game and slowly faded out of the industry. And this is just speculation on my part, but part of John Russell's quiet exit from the gaming industry may have had to do with the fact that the Alligator People, the only game that he ever programmed, was never actually released, although the game was apparently nearly finished and had entered the playtesting phase. Unfortunately, the playtesters didn't like the game all that much. They felt that it was too easy, and nobody at 20th Century Fox Games was interested in releasing it. In fact, they shuttered their entire game development business not long after the Alligator People had been completed in 1983, as the video game crash reached terminal velocity. And so, like so many other pieces of unreleased media, the alligator people for the Atari 2600 was lost and forgotten about. Nobody except for the programmers who had worked at 20th Century Fox Games at the time, and Atari superfans, even knew it existed, and for the better part of two decades, the fact that it did exist could not be confirmed or denied. It was a thing of rumor the type of thing that might get mentioned every once in a while on a thread buried deep in a niche online forum that very few people dared or cared to frequent. That is, until a prototype Atari cart with a handwritten label that simply said, Alligator People, surfaced in 1996. The cartridge was purchased by collector Marlon Bates for a rumored price tag of $3,000, and once the cart had been dumped, the Atari enthusiast community finally got a glimpse of a game that had not seen the light of day in 13 years. Alligator People's existence had not only been confirmed, 
but Atari fans were now able to play a mostly complete version of it via Atari emulators. The game itself was not all that interesting, and played much the same as many other jump-and-run Atari 2600 games. The game may not have been that entertaining, but at the very least, the Atari enthusiast community was relieved to finally have closed the case on the Alligator People Atari game. But was the case truly closed? There were some Atari aficionados that did not believe that this newly discovered game was in fact the Alligator People game. The game bore little resemblance to the movie. The player controls a human character that begins in a forest and travels through a desert and a series of canyons until reaching the final screen, at which point the game starts over. And there are no alligators or alligator people to speak of. There are three different kinds of monsters in the game, but they are all humanoid in appearance and they are all different shades of brown. Not green like you'd expect to see if they were supposed to be alligator people. But the Atari 2600 really didn't have the power to accurately represent things though, which you'll know if you've ever played or seen gameplay from the notorious E.T. video game for the Atari 2600. So the fact that the alligator people didn't closely resemble the movie wasn't all that much of a shocker. For a few years, it was generally accepted that the game was, in fact, Alligator People. That is, until one Atari community member by the name of Tempest did a little digging. In March 2002, Tempest found a 1999 interview on CyberRoach.com with programmer John W.S. Marvin, former programmer at 20th Century Fox Games and creator of Crypts of Chaos for the 2600. And in that interview, John W.S. Marvin describes the Alligator People game. A developer found out that Fox owned it and so he worked on it. It was almost like a frogger where you have to run through a moving maze and all these alligators. But there were also syringes that you had to dodge and if a syringe touched you, you slowly turned into an alligator. Now this was the VCS, so we're not talking too graphic. But I was quite amazed by it. And that doesn't really sound like the game that was found in 1996 because, as I mentioned, there is nary an alligator to be found in it, let alone a moving maze and flying syringes. But in that same interview, Marvin also describes another game that he had programmed while at 20th Century Fox that was completed but never released. There was a lot of pressure doing games that were based on movie titles. I actually worked on a Planet of the Apes game that never shipped. You had this human and you were chased by apes, and the only way to win the game. You had to find the Statue of Liberty like in the first movie. There were different kinds of apes, the orangutans, the chimpanzees and the gorillas but like any VCS thing they were big and blocky. It was a jump and run and it never saw the light of day. This confirmed Tempest's suspicions that the Atari cartridge labeled Alligator People did not actually contain the Alligator People video game because... John W.S. Marvin's description of his unreleased Planet of the Apes game perfectly matches the gameplay of the game that was formerly thought to be Alligator People. The 1996 cartridge was apparently mislabeled. So the Alligator People game was once again considered lost. Fortunately, not for very long, as on September 14th, 2002, User Castle Wolfenstein posted a thread on the AtariAge.com forums titled simply, Screenshot of Alligator People. 
And sure enough, Castle Wolfenstein posted a screenshot of an Atari 2600 game that was exactly as John W.S. Marvin had described it. The true prototype for alligator people had been rescued from a salvage yard by Castle Wolfenstein, who promptly sold it to another collector. That collector posted a dump of the game online and finally, finally the alligator people case was closed and Atari heads were able to play a game that had been lost for 19 years. But was it worth the wait? I decided to find out for myself and play the game. The alligator people for the 2600 is slightly different from how John W.S. Marvin remembered it. Rather than dodging syringes that are trying to inject you and turn you into an alligator, the player actually controls a flying syringe. And the object of the game is to cure your six friends as they are slowly turned into alligators. To do this, you collect vials of the antidote, represented by brownish colored lines, all while navigating your way through a moving maze of green obstacle blocks and shooting your way through wave after wave of vicious alligators. Once you've collected enough antidote, you bring it to your friends at the top and bottom of the screen and inject them until they're cured. Once you've cured all six of your friends, the screen resets and you have to do the whole thing over again until you get bored or until you die three times. There are nine different difficulty levels to choose from that range from the easiest version with no obstacles to the hardest version with a bunch of obstacles. There are little S-shaped items representing serum that you're able to collect, and the more serum you have, the easier the game is supposed to be, although honestly I didn't notice much of a difference myself. I mean, it's pretty much a variation of Frogger, but for an Atari 2600 game, I'd say it's pretty good. Does it resemble the movie at all? Well. Not so much, but that's pretty much to be expected on the 2600. And there's nothing I love more than a happy ending to a lost media mystery. And before we go this week, we have a listener email from friend of the show Steve over at the Waxing the Porpoise podcast. And I'll just throw in a little reminder that if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for topics to cover on Mount Molehill, don't hesitate to reach out to me via email at mountmolehillpodcast at gmail.com, or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 505-218-6894. Steve's email says, Nice work on the Clearway Law episode. Super interesting story, and I think I agree with your ultimate conclusion that it started as a marketing ploy that might have backfired a little bit. Obviously, I'm not an expert on American law, let alone Canadian law, but I did find a cool chart I thought you might like that shows the differences in defamation law between us and our poutine-eating neighbors to the north. Come back on the show soon so we can raise the motherfucking flag. Thanks for the email, Steve, and I'm still curious to hear what any of you other listeners think about the Clearway Law thing or any of the other topics that have been covered on Mount Molehill, for that matter. Now, I'm not going to read the entire chart comparing U.S. and Canadian law that Steve sent me, but overall, I feel like I made the right choice to be overly cautious when speaking about Clearway Law because, as far as I can tell, Canadian defamation law leans heavily in favor of the plaintiff in comparison to U.S. law. 
One key difference between the two countries, according to the chart that Steve provided, is that Canada is widely considered to have the most plaintiff-friendly libel laws in the English-speaking world, and the U.S. has what are considered to be the most defendant-friendly libel laws in the English-speaking world. Americans will be familiar with the concept of the presumption of innocence, which is usually summed up by the phrase, innocent until proven guilty. According to this chart, it is just the opposite in Canadian defamation law. The burden of proof is on the defendant to prove themselves innocent. So yeah, I'm glad that I didn't make any wild accusations in that last episode. Anyway, thanks again for the email, Steve. That's all I've got for this week. Mount Molehill is written, produced, and edited by me, Chris, with music by myself and Alex Bainter. Any voices other than mine featured on the podcast are computer-generated unless otherwise noted. All of the sources used in this episode can be found in the show notes. This podcast features materials protected by the Fair Use Guidelines of Section 107 of the Copyright Act, all rights reserved to the copyright owners. If you have a molehill that you'd like me to turn into a mountain, whether it's a mystery that you just can't solve or just an interesting topic that you'd like me to delve into, please reach out. You can email me at mountmolehillpodcast at gmail.com or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 505-218-6894. Follow us on Instagram to see updates and supplemental material for the show. Thanks for listening. I'll be back with another episode in two weeks. <laughs>